Thanks for listening to our podcast. The following is a ministry of Orchard Bible Church in Centennial, Colorado. Please join us on Sunday mornings. For more details, visit us online at orchardbible.org. Our passage this morning is Matthew 17, verses 1 through 8. This is the Word of God. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up on a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we are here. If you wish, I will make three tents here, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. He was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, this is my beloved son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, rise and have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. To remain standing. Father, we are grateful for your presence here this morning, just as you were present with those three many years ago. And Father, I praise to you that your word is here for us to learn and to contemplate. And would you open our hearts to that this morning? And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. I had an unusual teacher as I prepared this sermon. Never had a teacher like this. It was a chipmunk. I was on the back patio in Park City at a medical conference two or three weeks ago. I had my Bible. The conference hadn't started yet. And I was there, and I could see out in the grass, which I guess was about three inches tall, once in a while I'd see a little head pop up. I'm assuming it was a chipmunk, some of you that shoot all kinds of creatures might be able to correct me, but, uh, but it would just pop its little eyes up above the blade of grass. I didn't get close enough to tell whether it was a boy or a girl, but I'm going to assume maybe it was a girl as she ran onto the patio to survey behind this beautiful hotel in Park City, Utah, the environment that was there. Got a picture of her as I was sitting down. And I got to thinking to myself, what kind of view do you get when your head is two inches off the ground? Such beautiful scenery, but your panorama has to have some limitations. So periodically I would realize she was asking the same question and she would do something to make sure she got a view from four inches off the ground, just a little higher. When I think of you, child of God, I'm convinced from this passage Jesus wants you to have a view that's much better than his beloved chipmunks and little creatures in the world. And I'm going to suggest to you that the transfiguration is more than just you looking back in history to a story and and having to look back as to what might have been learned from something long ago. I'm going to suggest to you it's actually not just you looking ahead to something that's in the future, beyond the pearly gates and things, and we're told of things that exist in the distant future perhaps for us, maybe in the near future. 
but that the transfiguration in so many ways is more like a glimpse into the present and invites us to see more than we're used to seeing. It's a glimpse into the present, I think. And I want to show you how the transfiguration is a glimpse into the present. What is there to see on the other side of what exists today? It's a story of three disciples being led up a mountainside, probably to Mount Hermon in the north, north of the Sea of Galilee. That would fit the description of a high mountain. And they see Jesus transfigured. Greek word is essentially metamorphized. They see him change in, in appearance. And that's an important thing, change in appearance. Because we already know, if we've read ahead in Hebrews 13, that Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He has not changed in a way that his very substance or, or his character or his holiness has changed. But we know that three times in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, all describe a change in appearance of the Lord Jesus as he is led up there. Let me read the verses from Matthew 17, 2 and 3 that were just read. He was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun. His clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to him Moses and Elijah talking with him. So I want to ask the question, if we're to get a glimpse from this passage of what is, a glimpse into reality of today, what is the what is we're supposed to get a handle on that we could learn from this? I think, first of all, it's that Jesus always is the radiance of the glory of God. I have that on pretty good authority, don't I? Hebrews 1, chapter 3, chapter 1, verse 3. Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God. Right now, in, in, in realms that we will one day experience, one day be part of, he is right now the radiance of the glory of God. It is not some past thing, not some future thing. He is this very day. Some of you grew up as I did singing the hymn, Fairest Lord Jesus. Remember verse 3? Fairer is the sun, fairer still the moonlight, and all the twinkling starry host. Jesus shines brighter. Jesus shines purer than all the, heaven, the angels heaven can boast. That's based on good theology. He is shining in that way. He is the radiance of the glory of God, regardless of our ability to see it right now. The, the radiance that Jesus is and always has been was prophesied in Isaiah 60. Looking ahead to a, a future time, it talked about just how radiant this Jesus, this Lord, we will be, begin to see is. It prophesied that the sun will no more be your light by day, but the Lord will be your everlasting light. Your sun, S-U-N, shall no more go down, for the Lord will be your everlasting light. You see, the sun, S-O-N, will replace the 
S-U-N, and lighting up your existence. And John would record that in Revelation 21, near the very end of the scriptures, when he said, the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light. Its lamp is the Lamb. And you know who the Lamb is, your Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So I want to suggest to you that the transfiguration was an opportunity for Peter, James, and John to see the radiance of Jesus Christ muted. You say, what do you mean? They're, they're seeing this bright thing. They're seeing something that no other person, three, three people out of all that have lived, and they, they're seeing the radiance. No, they are still seeing a somewhat hidden radiance of what is to come. In fact, I would go so far as to say there's people that I know that are dear to us that are seeing more of the radiance of Jesus Christ right now than they did. A dear sister like Laura Hamill, dear friend that, that is in, like, like Bill Davis, they are experiencing a greater radiance of the Lord Jesus Christ than these disciples did. Well, let me show you why, and I'm going to put up on the screen that painting that is actually just from a few years ago that I think has a lot of biblical accuracy, or I wouldn't show it. You see, one of the things you need to notice that comes out in this painting is they are taking in the sight. These disciples are taking in the sight. You say, oh, no, no, they, they fell down terrified. No, they fell down terrified, not at the sight. They fell down terrified when the Father began to rumble out of the heavens with his voice. It's very clear that they took in the sight, this radiant Jesus. Compare that to, to what happens to Saul on the road to Damascus. When that light shone all about him, and, it's, and it indicates that before he f heard the voice, he fell to the ground. And I don't know whether the light caused him to be blind or not, but he was overpowered by that light, which we know was Jesus speaking from the heavens. Think of John, a half century later. The very John that's on this Mount of Transfiguration will talk about in Revelation chapter 1 what he saw in terms of the radiance, the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ as he was captured up on a Sunday to see it. I read it from the message when it says, It was Sunday and I was in the Spirit praying. I heard a loud voice behind me, trumpet clear and piercing. I turned and saw the voice in the center, the Son of Man in a robe and gold breastplate. And listen to the appearance that John describes. Hair a blizzard of white, eyes pouring fire blaze. His feet fire, furnace fired bronze. And listen to this his face a blinding sun. The Greek suggests what the sun does at full blaze, not at dusk or at dawn when you can see it. His face a blinding sun. And John says, I saw this. And I fell dead at his feet. 
The same John that took it in at the transfiguration, now describing what he saw unleashed when the radiance was unleashed. I've experienced something that I would say very few of you in this room have experienced. I was in Liberia almost 20 years ago when I saw what happens when a man is forced to look at the bright sun for a period of time. During the Civil War, I was, I, I was brought a man who during the Civil War there in Liberia had been forced at gunpoint by his captives to look up at the sun for a few hours each day for a few weeks. That had happened some years before and he had not been able to see since. Look at his eyes, they looked opaque. He had no sight because of looking at the sun in its full strength. So I'm confident that as marvelous as the sight was on that Mount of Transfiguration, it still is just a stepping stone to what those same three men are and we will once experience in glory, the radiance of Jesus. I also see in this passage not just that Jesus is always now for us the radiance of God's glory, that we have a present hope that, that we will be able to enjoy that radiant presence ourselves in full strength. There appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. You notice, first of all, a few things. Moses and Elijah are not radiant like Jesus. Now you're saying, oh, I remember Moses being radiant. Yes, says in Exodus that, that he was radiant because he had talked with God, had been with God, and that radiance would fade. It was a reflection of the radiant God. And I have no doubt that if we could have gotten up close to Elijah and Moses, looked him in the face, there probably was some radiant reflection. But compared to the radiant Christ, none of the gospel writers record any radiance of their faces because of the Christ in their midst. So we see that they were not radiant like Jesus. He is the one who shines in glory. We see that, they're, that Jesus is greater than Moses in Elijah. Moses, uh, many have said, is, is, is probably accurately portrayed in this situation as the great lawgiver of the Old Testament. And Elijah, the first, and, and perhaps some would consider of Old Testament Jews the greatest of the Old Testament prophets. And here Jesus shines forth among the law and the prophets as the one that brings forth a different level of light a different level of power, a different level of authority than these two voices that spoke in the Old Testament for God. And you know what? Does Jesus, does the Father, when he comes on the, the scene and, and has a message for the disciples, does he say, listen to them? I'm pretty confused in our world today about pronouns, but I take note of this one. It's singular and not plural. Listen to him. What a message that sends of the authority of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
that, that compared to even some of the greatest, most godly people that, that, that the Jews and the audience of that day would have respected. The message is no human authority, no human voice, unless it is speaking directly on behalf of God, compares to listening to him, the radiant one in their midst. But I see that Moses and Elijah, perhaps the part that to me, if there could be a tender, kind of a warm part to this scene in, in what would really terrify the disciples, there is a warm part of this scene because as this little hopeful rendition might suggest, they are at ease in the presence of the glorified Christ, Moses and Elijah. They're talking with him. He's talking with them. They're not cowering down on the ground with their, with their eyes, their arms covering their eyes. They're not trembling in fear. They're not like dead men that would be at the tomb when an angel would visit. They're not like Paul who, who fell and, and was blinded by the sight of the glorified Christ. They're not like John even. And still in this life, transported by vision, falling as if dead before the presence. There is something that will happen that I think this gives a glimpse of, of the enjoyment of his presence, of interacting with him, being able to, with new bodies, having been cleansed, washed, cleaner, than, than anything other than only the blood of Jesus could, that allows them to be in the presence of a holy and marvelous God. You are glimpsing, I would say also, as much as God intends for you to glimpse of that radiance in this life. You know, there have been seasons that we look in the Old Testament, even in the New Testament, where dramatic, miraculous uh, visitations of God's power and presence were there. But you know what? The results were sadly not very good. You think of the Israelites. Was there a time in history, in Old Testament history, when there was a, a better conglomeration of unbelievable wonders? What happened with the ten plagues? Going through the Red Sea. Moses up on Mount Sinai in the thunder and lightning. Manna every time for breakfast, day after day for 40 years. That's pretty impressive. It's a pretty impressive visitation of the miraculous. And yet, apart from Caleb and Joshua, almost no one else, you'll find their bones in the promised land. They were scattered around the desert because of unbelief. Think of Jesus. He's here preaching. He's healing. People hear that he's getting in a boat. They begin to pack. They don't even pack lunch. They start running along the shore trying to beat him to the next town over. Several miles, bring the kids, listen to him. Let's watch demons be cast out. Let's watch his voice, this one, this gracious words falling from his lips. No one's ever spoken like this man with such authority. Let's see what he would heal today. Let's hear what words he will enlighten us with. We've never heard these things before. And yet Matthew has already told us in Matthew 10 that he began to denounce those places in which he had been. He began to denounce them because 
they did not repent, Matthew eleven twenty. You know, we have not seen those dramatic displays, Red Sea partings. We've not seen multiplied loaves. We've not seen demons cast out over and over again in the course of a few months of teaching ministry of someone. We've not seen a transfiguration. But rather than wistfully wish for the dramatic, I would challenge us to to, and to welcome and to see what has been revealed to us that is of such value. We have the whole canon of Scripture. How many in the Old Testament wished they knew the whole story, knew all that we have, awaiting at the bedside for table for us each and every day to read? We have the, the whole gospel story. There's nothing left to add to the good news as revealed to us. We have the history of the church and how God's truth has marched on for these last 2,000 years. And the gates of hell have not prevailed against it. We have the testimony and example of, well, one another. And those saints throughout history who have trusted in Christ and lived in a way that have shown his faithfulness. So it makes me ask, when I hear what Jesus says to these disciples, what's there to fear? What's there to fear? Verses 6 and 7. Peter, James, and John fell on their faces and were terrified. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Rise and have no fear. How about you? But I, I look at this transfiguration, and I'm thinking fear producer. I'm not thinking fear reliever. What about you? I mean, he just comes over. They, they, they have seen a sight that no one else in the history of the world has ever seen the radiant Messiah with a sizable steps towards his glory in heaven in the past and in the future. They, he is transfigured so they see, might have just been a few minutes, I don't know, but they see a sight no one else has seen. They see figures that have died almost 1,500 years ago and 800 years ago. They hear a cloud envelop them and thunder to the point that drives them to their knees face down in fear. And Jesus says, well, with all of you seen, I hope you can relax now. I hope, you, I hope this is going to help you to, to walk in less fear. Well, it seems to me that the, the experience was probably much more of a fear producer. And yet Jesus can say to them, have no fear because he has made a way to have no fear. He has made a way to have no fear. I suspect there's a few different stops along that path that we could point out, but let me point out at least the obvious that the broader part of the scriptures in his life will unfold. He's already told them what they should fear most. And my concern is back then, and today, very few people in our circles fear the most what they should fear the most. What should they most fear? 
a holy and just God, right? He's already said to them in Matthew 10, Fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. And yet, on the cross, he, has, he, he will and he is teaching them why he has done the ultimate in relieving the worst of fears. Like the Gettys wrote in that great song, In Christ Alone, till on that cross when Jesus died, the wrath of God is satisfied. For every sin on him was laid. Here in the death of Christ, I live. So he has already shown them and he is unfolding for them that their greatest, what should be, their greatest fear is no longer a fear. If they believe in him and they allow him to absorb their sins on the cross in faith. I also see that on the pathway that he has opened up to have no fear is the fact that even right this moment, we have a reigning, radiant Savior for each one of us if we're in Christ. A, a glimpse of the, of the present, like the transfigured generation show, showed them, of this radiant, all-powerful, sufficient Christ a glimpse of that reminds us that right now he is reigning in the greatest of power with, with such brilliance and such holiness and such ability to rescue us from whatever he chooses in his sovereignty to rescue us from. If Jesus is your Savior, we need only remind ourselves maybe every few minutes for the rest of our lives, that there is nothing in my life that is outside his power to intervene. It is not a promise that he will intervene. We bow our knees to his sovereign will. But there is something powerful on the road to having no fear of reminding ourselves there is nothing in my life that is beyond his ability to intervene. And just maybe as is important, there is nothing in your life that is at the whim of an authority that is higher than that radiant Christ. He is the ultimate authority. There is no authority that has, has, has your life in its hands, no government, no demon, not even Satan, much less uh, the things in, in around the world, despots and dictators and cruel men and women, near and far, there is no authority that outstrips the authority of the reigning Lord Jesus, who is now reigning and reigning for us. And I would also add that the Almighty, the Transfiguration, really shows us a, a vivid example, has, has adjusted for us. You say, oh, that sounds like heresy. The, the Almighty has adjusted to me. Philippians 2, he adjusted for you. He emptied himself, having been fully God, emptied himself so he could take on human form. I would say to you on that transfiguration where we see a glimpse into present reality, he even adapted in his radiance. 
I don't want to be so sacrilegious. He said, Father, just keep the wattage to a certain amount. These guys can't take it. But he did, in a sense, keep the radiance to a degree that they could take it in and tell us what they saw. Demonstrate his awesome deity that was there all the time, but now they see a much greater glimpse of what always has been and what is today. A radiant Savior. Spurgeon said, too clear a manifestation of God would overpower us and not empower us. Makes me think, what, what has God done to adjust, to, to condescend this perfect, unchangeable God, but to condescend to us? We know 2,000 years ago, he condescended to take on human form. But, but we are granted, according to the scriptures, the opportunity for a personal relationship through faith in Christ. He's condescended to allow that to be the case. But more than that, what if, what if his glory was on full display each and every day of your life? I mean really on display. Just, just taking some of the things we know are the case in the scriptures. Just imagine all of a sudden he gets rid of the sun and he's lighting up this earth like he will, is and will light up for us the heavens. To the point where we're, we're blinded. We, we can't, even, can't even get to work. Sorry, boss, I'm late again. Jesus has blinded me. What if, what if the Father thundered from above? Let's not say every minute. Let's say he thundered from above every hour to the point where we were tossed on the ground in fear as dead men and women because of how awesome his visitation, his, his unbridled visitation on us was of his glory. We wouldn't be able to do very much in our human form. And yet, we look forward to a time like Moses and Elijah and saints before us when we're enjoying that, when some things change that allow us to enjoy that radiance and that thunderous voice. But he has caused us to, to, to be in a personal relationship and not a life where we're immobilized, terrified, face down. Praise God that even on the Mount of Transfiguration, he was about empowering them with his glory and not overwhelming them. He's doing the same for us. In, in his sovereignty, he has he is given us enough to live this life without overwhelming us. And yet the promise is there of we will see him. We will see the one who is fairer than all in heaven. So what's to learn? Let me begin to wind down. What's to learn? I would just simply like to take the three commands that, that we hear the disciples heard on that Mount Transfiguration. Because the Mount of Transfiguration was clearly not just to impress them, it was to instruct them as well. To not just to overwhelm them, but to empower them. So let's see what maybe a regular glimpse into the present might urge us to do, as I believe it did for those disciples. What were they told? Well, first of all, in chapter 17, verse 5, 
they were told by the Father, listen to him. I think they probably had a sense we're supposed to listen to Jesus already. I don't think that was like, wow, a new thought. (laughs) But don't you think that that glimpse of what Jesus is, what he is right now for them and for us, created even more motivation to listen to him above any other authority. To, to, to hold on to his words and his instructions from the bread of life, this light of life who gives this water that causes us to never thirst again. Listen to him. The transfiguration should cause us with this glimpse that he truly is this awesome, this great, this wonderful. It truly should cause us to have one more motivation to Listen to him. But Jesus also says a simple word to them, rise. You know, it's almost always translated, arise or get up. When he comes over and taps them on the shoulder at the end of this scene. The word does mean a little bit more than just simply, hey, can you guys get off the ground? You know, come on, stand up. It's not a stand up. It is, it's, it's usually translated arouse, get going, be excited for what you need to be about. I think that's important because it wasn't just a message to impress the disciples, but to get them going in their own callings and ministry. Having seen this, it's not like, okay, Lord, take us home. We're not Simeon, you know, in the temple. Lord, I've seen this now. What more can there be for me to do? Well, there is more for you to do if you're more convinced of the greatness of Christ. And for each one of us, there is work he has given us to do. I can look out on this crowd and appreciate what has been done, but I know until your final breath, there is still more for each child of God to do. That, that he works that he has, has, has chosen for you to do for him. Service to perform. Worship to render. Love to give to both him and those around you. And then he says, have no fear. So easy to say, but a little harder to live out. You know, I look down to verses 22 and 23 of this chapter, and Jesus says to them, they've now gathered back in Galilee, probably just a few days later, all 12 are there, it seems. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and he will be raised on the third day. And then Matthew, one of the disciples, writing, says, and they were greatly distressed. They were greatly distressed. I found myself wondering, were Peter, James, and John at least a little less fearful than the other nine? Jesus had not just shown them. He told them, don't share this with the others till the resurrection. I don't know. Given the frailty of our... Of our human constitution, it's likely they were just as fearful and distressed at Jesus saying this. But maybe not. Maybe they were making some progress, having seen a glimpse into the the reigning and radiant Christ 
that he really does have this. And, and I don't need to walk in fear when I have my Jesus as my Savior. Strangely enough, I know it's July, preaching in July. Strangely enough, I thought of a Christmas carol. I thought of a Christmas carol because I couldn't help with, with what I was seeing in this passage and this emphasis that I saw to see what Christ is in the here and now as beneficial. I couldn't help but think of the song of the, the Charles Dickens tale, A Christmas Carol. And you remember that 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 Charles Dickens' tale had, had significant influence on English society when it came out on December 19th of 1843, just before Christmas. That's 180 years ago. Remember, near the end, Scrooge says, Merry Christmas. You know, very few people apparently in England said Merry Christmas. That story, if you say Merry Christmas a couple thousand times in December, there's a little bit of learning from Scrooge that you have gained from that because it was not said very much prior to that. Even the term Scrooge has entered into the dictionary. Hopefully it's not your face at Christmas time. That's an example there. But it had an enduring effect on society. But you know who it had an enduring effect on? It was Charles Dickens himself. Because he gave thought, no doubt, to the ghost of Christmas past. As, as in this fictional story, he had someone later in his years who, who was inward and selfish and, and needed to, to look into the past and try to learn some lessons of things that, that he hadn't seen very well. And no doubt Dickens spent some time thinking about the, the ghost of Christmas future and, and the warnings that would come from that if Scrooge was able to see into the future. But it seems that the ghost of Christmas present, of thinking about the present, thinking about what is there but unseen, was likely the most powerful influence on him. He put a lot of research into it. He wrote the book in six weeks. But one of his very best friends, a man named John Forster, who worked with him, born in the same year, they were the same age, uh, they, they were good friends who wrote the uh, definitive biography of Charles Dickens when Dickens just came out a couple years after Dickens died in 1872. And, and so this man knew Dickens well enough that when he, would, when he wrote about A Christmas Carol, he would say something like this, that, that Dickens wept over it. He laughed, then he wept again. The, the, the thinking through this story excited him. And he went on to describe how he would research and think through what would be the ghost of Christmas present, this, this desire to see the present better. He said Dickens would walk, at the time he was just 31, Dickens would walk at sometimes 15 to 20 miles along the dark streets of London, even late into the night, to try to see what was always there, but he hadn't been seeing. It affected him. It affected him because, of course, he wrote the story. But it affected him beyond that first Christmas of 1843, because his biographer and good friend John Forster would say, Dickens made a habit for many Christmases thereafter that on Christmas Eve, 
He would visit the markets of London where, where there was much fun, much that was just reminding him of just the joy of Christmas. And then on Christmas Day, he would take a walk through the poorest neighborhoods of London. And he would see in the shabby homes he would pass a young child who had already been to work rushing into the home to get ready. He'd, he'd see a woman who had very little means but making Christmas dinner through the window. He would remind himself over and over again of present realities so he would stay continually changed by the experience. Isn't the transfiguration a bit like that? Seeing what was always there, what is, but we're not seeing often enough or with as much clarity as we should. My hope is that a glimpse into the present would help us do that. In Jesus' name, let's pray. Father, we're grateful for this passage. We thank you for a reigning and radiant and awesome Savior. And may his very existence, his very reign today, enable us to live lives as you commanded disciples without fear, confident in our Lord and anticipating the time that we will enjoy his radiant and unmitigated presence. And we pray this in his name. Amen. Have a good Sunday.